This podcast is brought to you by Michael Alden, the author of a new book entitled Blueprint to Business, an entrepreneur's guide to taking action, committing to the grind, and doing things that most people won't. In Greg's interview with Michael, they discuss the important elements and traits that are required to become a successful entrepreneur. Michael Alden is a serial entrepreneur with a wealth of experience and a fearless and unstoppable drive. I know you will enjoy learning what can set you apart from the crowd in your business, plus so much more. Please listen to podcast number 646 to hear Greg's wonderful interview with author Michael Alden about his new book, Blueprint to Business. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And uh, Chris uh, Brez Brown has been on our show before, and I was so intrigued by his books and his work um, that I invited him back again. And the book we're going to be speaking about today is called Shine, How to Survive and Thrive at Work, um, Upping Your Elvis Factor. Chris, good day to you from uh, London, England. That's where you are today, right? Well, I'm, I'm at home right now. I'm down in Lyme Regis in England, so I'm on the coast. Ah, okay. Well, good, good. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure having you back on again. And this book for anybody out there who's in business uh, and is trying to improve uh, and survive and thrive in this crazy, fast-paced world we've got, um, this is definitely a fun little read. Um, the interesting thing is all of his little segments in the book, they're just a couple of pages long. So what you like is you go through, you can pick out what you need. Um, very brilliantly done, Chris. I like books like these because... Today, as you know, a lot of people don't don't want to read that much. They just want to pick it up and get what they can get. So you've definitely done that. Um, I'm going to let my listeners know a bit about you. Um, Chris is on a mission to bring creativity, energy, and engagement to the business world. After helping turn Carling Black Label into the first British billion-pound brand, he joined What If, the Innovation and Idea Agency. Uh, there he helped some of the world's biggest businesses get better at innovating. And in 2009, he founded Up Your Elvis, a business whose sole focus is to release the genius of organizations by helping their people shine more brightly. He works with folks like Coca-Cola, Nike, Citibank to help their bring, uh, teams make an extraordinary impact. His brevi- previous books include How to Have Kick-Ass Ideas, um, was described as champagne in the veins toxic for uh, jauntous people uh, by Eden Project founder Tim Schmidt. And you can find Chris at his website, uh, which is probably the best place to go, is Berez, B-A-R-E-Z hyphen brown dot com. There you can find out about all his books, uh, his um, videos, um, and so on. So, Chris, um, let's start this off. You kind of start the first lesson. I call them little lessons because that's really what they are. Um, you mentioned that Bono always asks this question. He asks states that is on his mission to eradicate third world debt. When he comes into an organization, he asks, who's the Elvis around here? Why does he ask this and why do, why do we need to be more Elvises in our organization? Yeah, well, so it's it's a question that I just love. So when I first heard that question, who's Elvis around here? 
I could answer it really easily because what he's really asking is who here is a bit of a brand, a maverick. They get stuff done. They break the rules. They've got energy about them and they love every second of it. And, um, and, and for me, I know that business needs more Elvis. We need more people who are confident to be themselves, who, who, who you know, stand out from the crowd, who, who break those rules. And, um, you know, not only does business definitely need more Elvis, but I'm absolutely certain there's a bit more Elvis in each one of us. So, you know, what we love to do is we love to bring that Elvis out and, and celebrate the fact we're all a bit unique and different, but we've got some special stuff going on. We just need to deploy it more often. So how do you go into organizations and help organizations uh, help the employees release their own Elvis? Yeah, so, I mean, we, well, we do everything from kind of, you know, big, grand scale culture change programs, you know, down to kind of trainings and, and events. But, but you know, the, the secret to making any of them work is, is, is always the same. If you, can, if you can help people become more confident in self-expressing, in, um, in being themselves, in looking at the world that they're, you know, I guess that surrounds them and improving it a little bit every day, then, then you get magic happening. And obviously some of that is giving them some skills and some of that is giving them some behaviors. And a lot of it is to do with giving them the right attitude, you know, the right belief system about the fact that, you know, they've got all they need to do amazing work. They just got to be able to tap it more often. Mm -hmm. And actually kind of, as I say, get, get out of your own mind, because I think you set up your own uh, perceptions of your reality. And as you know, it takes wanting to step out of that and at least understand that's what you're doing. We're very conditioned. Um, and I think you have to break conditions that have been there for years, indoctrinated through your, your parents and through school. Um, what's one of the things that you do to help people break these old conditions and molds that they have? Um, well, I, <laughs> I guess what we're quite famous for is jolting them out of it. Um, and, and we jolt them out of it, I guess, through um, you know, loving experiences. What we, we don't do is, you know, give, give people a fearful time, but we make it incredibly good fun. And and what we're, I suppose, a lot of our success comes from is by creating the right conditions of fun and, and, and humor and humanity and connection, showing them how effective they can be in those in that kind of environment. And, and, you know, it's really important. They have a very positive experience of it quite early on. And, you know, the biggest change programs that I've done with the most success, you, you know, you get some ROI stories out, out the, the door really quickly so that people can look at them and go, actually, you know what? I've, I've got social proof. You know, I, I used to do it this way. I now do it this way. Uh, and actually, I'm getting better results. You know, and as long as people are getting that on a personal level as well as a team and organizational level, then the change sticks. Yeah, definitely. Now, if we're to be more innovative, what can we do to turn down that rational analytic brain so that we can tap into this creativity? You're all about creativity and innovation. So um, we know that you know there's the cortex, the frontal cortex, the amygdala. We know how this stuff processes now, at least scientists do. And the reality is, is sometimes um, we need to to rewire that and refire. Uh, how do you people? How do you help people tap that creativity? That's it's abundant in supply. Yeah, so I mean, I I used to teach lots of different creative techniques, and and frankly, it was too complicated, and people couldn't really assimilate them. So what I, I spend more of my time on now is about helping people just access the right state. So we spend a lot of time when we're at work, you know, using logic and analysis and rationality, and that's all all great for when we're you know doing conscious thinking and we're you know we're trying to use you know, a little bit more, I guess, of our smarts. 
the, the, the difficulty is that, you know, that bit of our brain and that bit of our processing isn't very much of our overall capacity. So our conscious brain, you know, is, is now believed to be anywhere between five and maybe 15, 1.5% of our overall capacity. Therefore, if you really want to tap your creative genius, you've got to get into the, to access the subconscious. Now, our subconscious um, has the capacity, they now believe to remember every experience that we have in our lives. It might, it might be compressed and squelched and stored in a strange way, but it's all in there. And, and if we can't necessarily remember every experience, we can certainly remember every license plate we've ever driven past. So it's by far the biggest source of stimulus that we can ever have, and it never stops processing. So it's really important that we learn how to access that more. And for me, the trick is you know, to supplement the great thinking with some great feeling, because obviously our subconscious talks to us through body response, through intuition, through gut feel. Mm-hmm. And most of, most of my clients find that, that that is their struggle. You know, they're very, very comfortable around rationality. They're less comfortable about following hunches and going, mm, this feels like a good thing to try. The best creators I know always say stuff like this. They say, there's something in this idea. If, if you say, well, what is it? They couldn't tell you, but they're happy to invest the time and energy because they are happy to trust their gut. Yeah. Yeah. That intuition and actually asking questions of your intuition is so valuable. I think what people yeah. think is, oh, I have this voice inside. I say you're clairvoyant, clairascension, or clairaudient. Well, some people get it different ways, but when you get that gut feeling or you hear something, you definitely need to ask more questions and be more sure. uh, outward about it because you will get a response no matter what. And I think that's what you're saying is the response is there. Just take the time to start to invest in developing that. Now, um, y- you you mentioned we're running too fast, and we all know that. We were talking about setting up our Skype uh, things here a minute ago, that our lives are hectic. We've got all this electronic device. This is the age of really technology and electronics and how it's transforming society. What advice do you have uh, to tune ourselves into us, as you say, as you state in the book? What are some of the things that you can do to tune yourself into us? I think there's a load of things that we can do. I mean, you know, to your point about the digital distractions, um, I, I would never turn back time. I would never suggest that you know all this tech is is bad for us. We just need to learn how to use it better. So I'm a big fan of digital detoxes. I'm a big fan of zoning the work that we do so that we have specific behaviors and environments for the specific tasks. So for example, you know, just commit to doing your email once or twice a day, put it in your diary. Beyond that, turn it all off and focus with more depth on the work that you're doing because our processing is just becoming a, a lot more shallow um, and actually you need depth for creativity. So so managing the conditions for creativity is very different to managing conditions for you know usual productive work where you're just churning through stuff. So you've got to be very deliberate about it. I'd say one of the, the, the best ways to make sure that we're priming ourselves to be more creative it is actually, it's all about making things real. It's all about doing more stuff, getting your hands dirty. Because by, by doing so, what you'll do is you will be priming your subconscious to give you more of the right answers. Your subconscious doesn't work very well with you being intellectual and doing things in theory. It works brilliantly by you trying stuff out and, and learning in a visceral way. So I'm a huge fan of making things real. Yeah, um, it is one of the ways you can do that. I know. One of the things I tell people 
Um, and I got this from Stephen Kotler, the guy who wrote Abundance and the Rise of Superman. You know, if you really want to try and rewire and refocus or change things, you know, you should read material which is not in your lane. So, you know, if you're a personal growth person, take something in Architectural Digest or something else and read it. And the reality is the creativity levels go up quite a bit. Now, you mentioned that most people don't have their best ideas at their desk. We just talked about that. Sure. What advice yeah. do you have for breaking the chains um, around our desks that keep our feet shackled so we can tap the creativity? Yeah, so, I mean, if you, if you do ask people where they have their best ideas, they always say, you know, walking the dog, lying in bed, having a shower, commuting to work. It, it's always the time that they are in a more relaxed and, and more playful state because in that in that state you access more of your subconscious naturally so um, if if you do have a desk that's all about you know computer screens and you know working through you know chunks of of of, of, uh, of tasks that will set you up into a much more conscious kind of processing um, um, form. So it's really important that actually, you know, you get out of that environment and you vary it. So th the quickest way to change your state is to change your space, right? So moving to other places is is the easiest way, I think, to get people out of their heads, more into their bodies um, and, and, and more into their creativity. And there's lots of exercises you can do to, to help um, kind of harness that even more. We do a lot of walking, talking exercises where, um, you know, if you've got a a particular problem that you want to talk about or, or get into, you know, you go off, you grab a buddy and one of you just rants about it for, we, we did this for seven and a half minutes and you just talk as a stream of consciousness as fast as you can while the other person just listens. And if you do this walking, what you'll find is that your creativity really spikes. The, the MIT study from a couple of years ago showed that your creativity can spike by up to 60, 60% if you are walking at your natural gait. So just getting away from your desk, going for a walk and ranting brings up some amazing insights, some, some shifts in perspective and often some, some pretty much ready-made ideas. But obviously whilst you're doing that, what will ha what will happen is every now and again you're going to say some stuff that's that's not true. You're going to say some stuff that isn't very clever because you're going quite fast. But every now and again you will say something that creates a reaction in you, you know, some type of physical state reaction, and that's your intuition, that's your subconscious saying, "Hey, pay attention here." So th those are the little nuggets that you want to you want to jot down. And what I found with uh, with most of my clients is they prefer that way of having ideas now to any traditional brainstorming. Yeah, it's, it will, especially if they work in an environment in a big office or something. It's sure. it's much more conducive to just get out and go walk in the street, or if there's a park by, great. If there's a beach somewhere near, uh, that's awesome. But anyway, to get away what you're saying from the desk to a different environment and walk at your gate, I would agree with you. That's where you can have some epiphanies. That's where you can have some aha moments uh, about what you're doing. Now... You mentioned the book, We All Have a North Star, and this guides and directs us. How do we learn how to get, um, uh, not get so attached, not get so attached to our goals and understand better about how to be flexible so that we aren't set up for any kind of disappointment if we don't actually reach or the goal that we have intended isn't the same that we had in our mind's eye about how we were going to reach it? 
<laughs> it's a really good question. You know, it's something I struggled with for, for years. My my brother, who's a very, very smart guy, excellent strategy guy, he was always going, Chris, you've got to have some goals in your life. You've got to have some goals. And I always resisted. I was like, no, I can't have one because, quite frankly, I just don't know quite what I want to do with my life. You know, I wanted to have freedom and flexibility. And it, and it wasn't until... You know, one night when we were chatting that, um, that I, you know, the penny dropped that actually the goal is purely for today. It is just an intention and a direction to make sure that you're using your talents. It can completely change again tomorrow, as indeed it should, you know, develop as, as, as you learn and you experiment and you try new things out. So, um, so I think when, when thinking about North Stars, I, I see them as, you know, it's a directional thing. It's not something that, you know, you, you would die in a ditch over because quite frankly, the journey is the important part. And actually most people I know, you know, when they get fixated about goals, they achieve them and they actually found it's relatively a hollow experience because they thought actually the goal was all about what would bring them happiness, what would make them feel, you know, satisfied and, and fill a kind of void for them. Whereas the truth is, you know, actually every day should be doing that if we engage in the journey in a fun experimental way. Yeah. So true. Uh, everything that you say, it really resonates, obviously, with me. As I, as I told you coming on, this is the kind of work I love doing. And like you said, inspiring people to really understand this is so important because they get so fixed. And you have great advice sure. about how to hold meetings. Let's see, people out there listening who are working for a company, uh, I think they get meeting to death. You know, I got another management meeting. <laughs> yeah. I got another sales meeting. I got another meeting you know, to talk about projections, whatever it is. Um, what I loved your idea about taking the tables out of the room, right? Um, and just yeah. having the chairs. So it was almost like an Indian powwow. I love that. Uh, you know, pass the talking stick. What are some of the ideas you have for holding meetings that are going to make those meetings, if I have to have them more fun and uh, get through them a lot quicker? Well, the, um, the, probably the, the most important thing is that um, I, most of my clients, when they run meetings, they are um, unclear as to who's there, what their role is, what the vision of success is, how they should be, what the environment should be like to create that that unique, unique context. And therefore, they, they often start in a, in a really wobbly fashion. And I, th I think meetings, they're a bit like, um, you know, curling, you know, the winter sport where you, 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 you kind of you slide the, the granite stone along the ice. I think meetings are a bit like that. It's all, about the, it's all about the setup. It's all about the first release. If you get that right, you don't have to work very hard brushing, you know, to get it on target. If you get it wrong, you've got a whole lot of work to do. And so often, I think people just get the, the whole setup wrong. They just assume people know why they're there, what they're doing, and how to make the most of it. So setup is absolutely key. I would then be ruthless about who's in it. So I, I see so many meetings where people go along because they're kind of interested. And um, and I, I don't want people in my meetings who are kind of interested. I want people there who are really going to add value to whatever it is we're doing. And, you know, if, if it's a communication meeting, then there's lots of other ways we can do it, right? And we can do that more efficiently with video and all sorts of different things. But, you know, my meetings, you know, I want either stuff to be generated and be creative or I want some decisions to be made and things move forward on. The more people involved in that, the harder it is. So I, I'm ruthless on making sure that we've got, you know, just exactly the right people in there. And I don't have anybody who comes along just because they enjoy meetings, which seems to be almost, a, you know, a, a professional kind of um, 
you know, nicety. You know, I just want to be involved in everything because that's the kind of culture we're at. So, so that, that that helps as well. And then I think once you've done that, then we can get into the energy of stuff. So, you know, if if we are getting a group of people together, then you know, let's celebrate the fact that you know it's about humanity, and therefore we don't do it around big tables with lots of screens. You know, we get up a little bit, we do some walking around, we make sure that we look after people's energy before we look after their intellect. You know, so so you know, make sure that they feel as if they're being cared for, make sure they've got lots of natural light, make sure we don't sit down for too long, you know, have lots of visual fun stuff to play with so that it's not just a load of words. And then people, you know, people enjoy it and, and they do their best. And and always, always, always start on time and always, always, always finish early. Because most of my clients spend their whole time trying to catch up because Guess what? Their, their 10 o'clock meeting finishes at 11, so their 11 o'clock meeting can never start on time. And I just don't understand why they do such a thing. It's You can only do it with time travel. Hey, it's a great advice that you have, and that is to basically have fun in those meetings. And I think you're, yeah. you're right. The lighting, the environment is just as important as uh, having the right people in the meeting because you're looking for an outcome and finish a little bit early and start on time. That's great advice. Now, I'm a big fan of uh, Greg McKinnon, the guy who wrote the book, The Essentialists. And you, you say in your book, you should buy less crap and live a life of essentialism. What are some of the things that you've done, or in your estimation, can help our listeners have more of an essentialist lifestyle versus just more is better? Well, I think I think it all really comes from an awareness, really. I mean, it, so we've got this kind of we've got this inner caveman, and and the inner caveman is always basically looking to survive, and and therefore if he's got enough wood for today, you know he'll he'll get more wood for tomorrow, you know, because actually the more wood, the more chance he's he's gonna you know keep the fires burning, cook more food, keep the beasts away, and we've got this inner caveman in us all. Um, and it's it's very very much subconscious driven because it's all about survival instincts. The, the problem is we've got enough wood, right? We've we've got enough food and water. We've got you know all the basic needs taken care of, but we still have this yearning inside, you know, this hole that we're trying to fill. And um, you know, lots of people try and fill that in lots of different ways. Some people do it through exercise, and that's all very very good, and that's quite a healthy pursuit. Uh, some people try and fill it through, you know, drugs and alcohol, less healthy. And a lot of people, you know, try and fill this hole just by buying more crap. Because actually, you get the same kind of hit um, from buying crap as you would if you were out as a, you know, as a, as a hunter-gatherer, you know, trying to get more food in. So they get this kind of little small bite-sized uh, bits of, 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 you know, satiation. Um, and, and, but as soon as they've got it, they, they have to move on to the next one. So I think awareness is absolutely key to understand why we're doing it, um, because actually by getting some awareness into it, then maybe we could become more conscious about the decisions we make. I, said, I think then the second thing is then saying, and this is what, what really helped me, um, was we do need some stuff in our lives, and it's important to have you know certain, certain items. I, you know, for, for me, I, I, I would much prefer to have one killer pair of sunglasses that I really, really like and maybe cost a few more pounds or dollars than have 10 pairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, go for something good, go for something you love, something that's gonna last and gonna stay with you, rather than, you know, just just picking up more more rubbish. So so you know, that's that's something I, I live by. I much prefer to buy it once and go for quality than buy it ten times just to have more choice. 
Yeah, I think there's a staying, saying here in the U.S. I don't know what it's like in uh, Britain, but, you know, people uh, have homes and then they have to buy a storage unit to put all the crap that they have. <laughs> and so they spend money and then once a year they go look in the doors of the storage unit to see the crap that's inside the storage unit, but that they've play, paid hundreds of dollars for to have it sit there so they could look at it. It's pretty insidious when you think about it that... You know, we have a society where there's billions of dollars being made off of people putting up little units where people can go store their crap. Um, so you state that we shouldn't be afraid to say we don't have all the answers. Uh, how would you um, tell somebody out there who's listening to this, who works inside a company, who maybe says, well, uh, Chris, that's going to make me look misinformed to my supervisors. Um, what what kind of advice would you give somebody out there is going, you know, I really should have the answers, but you, we obviously don't always have them, but they're afraid. So they fill in with something else. They just make something up. <laughs> it's really common, Greg, right? It's really common. So, um, I, I mean, I completely sympathize with somebody's point of view who thinks, hey, my boss is going to try and catch me out. And if I don't have the answers, I'll look bad. I completely understand that. But the problem with actually saying that you always have all the answers um, is, is I, I guess, numerous. N number one, it's exhausting because you can't possibly have all the answers all the time. But actually, what it means is that you end up working very, very hard to get as many as you can. And um, I, I've worked with, with some of the biggest companies in the world, one of which comes to mind, huge company, and they have a just-in-case culture. So they would spend all night getting decks of information together just in case the boss asked the question. And uh, you know that's that's just exhausting, and it's a horrible place to be because it just feels like you're going to be caught out. And and what kind of culture, you know, you know, wants to catch you out? That's that's just wrong. The the, the second thing is, I think what it sets up is, um, it's a ridiculous belief that to be successful in organisations, you have to have all the answers. Now, as nobody can have them all, um, you know, people start to to worry, to, to get anxious about whether they're good enough. As soon as people think they're not good enough, then actually that doors away at their, their self-esteem and at their confidence and they start to perform badly. And, you know, this idea that, you know, the top of the top of the tree, you know, the, the chairman of the board has all the answers all the time means that it, actually nobody actually wants to aspire to be that person and to, and to, to work their way up. And it, it means that people start to tell lies. They start to make things up. They start to fabricate things because actually it's better to have an answer that um, you sound confident about, even if it's wrong, than go, I have no idea. So for me, I think it's amazingly liberating to say, actually, as a leader, if you don't know, go, hey, I don't know. You know, we can all, we can all then go away and find out. But actually in that moment, just to make stuff up and come up with something that's half true is just a lot more dangerous than just fessing up. And, and I think it's a lot more um, inspiring for a leader to say, do you know, I'm humble, I'm human. You know, that's, that's how I want people to be in my business. I would agree with you. I mean, obviously, if you don't have an answer, don't make it up. And you can always find the answer and it doesn't usually take that long. So, you know, that's something that uh, that's what they pay you to do is help find the right answers. You know, you, you state in the book that we should um, hang out with resonators and not vampires. I call vampires people that suck your psychic energy. They're just constantly, you know, looking to, to just keep, I, I don't know, they're almost like a leech on you. Um, 
how do you would you advise because in a work environment people are subject to both types of these personalities um and what would you advise uh, people in the work environment to do if they are with some vampires um how do you avoid them how do you avoid them yeah yeah well i mean we've all had that experience haven't we i mean we we know leaders who when they come in the room the very hope disappears mm -hmm. and um and those would be the vampires and we also know other ones who can turn you know uh, you know uh, something that's gone horribly wrong into a party and and i think that the latter are the ones i want to play with because there's possibility with them you know there's a chance for actually us to generate and grow and do something interesting um we do have to come across them both because they are in all organizations um and i, I guess the, the question is, when you're when you're kind of managing the amount of time that you spend with them, um, how much control can you have over it? Because personally, in my business, it's very easy because I only recruit people who are resonators, right? I don't take anybody into my business that would that would be negative at all because it would be crazy. And also, I, I I don't work with any clients that I find particularly negative because what's the point? I'm not going to do great work. But when you're in a, a a structure where you're not fully in control of the people you work with, what can you do? Well, for, first of all, I, I minimize my time with them. And we we all have some control over where we, we put our time and attention and our focus. Um, and, and obviously, if you can if you can spend more time with the right people and, and less with the negatives, that's going to help. I think, um, I think for some time, I spent quite a lot of my energy trying to change vampires. And actually, I what I found is it's much better just to accept them. Because there are some people who are just wired for negativity. And actually, you can spend quite a lot of time and effort and energy getting caught in their wiring if you're not careful. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I, I prefer to just say, look, you know, that's, that's your kind of, that's your way of being. Get on with it. I completely understand it. I don't agree with it. It's not what I dig, but that's your, that's your gig. And what I find is by, by accepting them for who they are, it troubles my energy a lot less, to be honest. So I, I'm, I've kind of... I've kind of changed a bit. I'm, I'm, I'm not into trying to make everyone positive because actually I, I think it's, uh, it's not an efficient use of energy. And then I suppose the other thing is just look after yourself well, right? So we, we know we're going to come across negative people. It is going to happen at times. If our energetic state is positive because, you know, we've, we've got good rest, we're physically healthy, we're mentally feeling, you know, as if we're balanced, you know, we're expressing our emotions well, we're connecting to our purposes, Negative people have a lot less impact on us than if we're feeling fragile, if we're actually feeling um, vulnerable. So, you know, for, for me, look after yourself first and actually the rest of the world doesn't buffer you quite so much. Awesome. Well, Chris, you know, you this little book is packed solid, full of great advice and great wisdom for anybody out in the work environment. Uh, actually anybody, period, people who are, you know, entrepreneurs, people are inventors, people are working for other companies. And what I love about it is you can pick this book up anywhere, as I said in the beginning, and just, pick, you know, roll to a page and you're going to get some great advice. And chances are, if you're in touch with your intuition, try that. Just pick a page and, and read it and you're going to find that those two pages are going to have some relevancy to you. Um Chris, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth. For my listeners, um, if you want to learn more about Chris, go to www.barez-brown.com. There you can look at uh, his videos, as I said, his blog, speaking engagements, uh, his wake-up uh, uh, program, 
and all about his books, which you can get all these books on Amazon and any of the bestsellers. Um, Chris, any parting words for our listeners? I suppose my, my, my big thing is that, you know, we spend a third of our, our days on this planet are working days. And if we're not doing what we love and we're really engaging in it and bringing, you know, our special talents to bear, it's a terrible waste of life. So, you know, my encouragement would be, you know, we all get um, times that the, the work doesn't feel right and there's no such thing as a perfect job. So, you know, our role in that is to make it as perfect as it can be for us. And, and I think that's a, that's a continual challenge. We have to do that every day, but it's so worth it because when you start to get your energies working well, when you're you know, having a creative, human, fun, energetic time, everything just flourishes. So, you know, never give up, never give up. Uh, great advice, Chris. Great advice. Thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth. It's an absolute pleasure again, Greg. 